Let's stand for the reading of scripture. We're going to start off in Acts 16, verses 13 and 14. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the woman who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Acts 16, verse 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. Acts 16, verses 27 through 31. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he had thought that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Philippians 1, verse 6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out onto the completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Micah. Let's pray. We come now, Father, here to begin the book of Philippians, a summer of studying this handbook on human flourishing, a sort of how-to on happiness. And it comes, Lord, happiness, joy, peace, contentment comes to the kingdom of God people in an upside-down, backwards way. Through this series of studies over the next three months in this beautiful book, from the planting of the church in Philippi, to the present moment sitting here in Midtown San Diego, I pray that these souls would come to know contentment beyond their wildest dreams, peace that surpasses understanding, joy unwavering, unshakable, and that we would break the vice grip Satan has on our society of anxiety and depression and loneliness, that through this summer, neighbors and the churches of San Diego would become a civilization of heaven, a colony of the kingdom of God, a people of praise and wonder and thanksgiving and joy, skips in our steps no matter what, or how or where we find ourselves, that we would be a people who rejoice, rejoice in the goodness of God, and exalt him in all ways. In all of these things, God's people said, amen. How many of you have ever been to Manhattan, just by a show of hands? Okay, cool, so a lot of you. If, you, if Next time you're in Manhattan, or if you're ever visiting Manhattan, I cannot encourage you enough to go spend some time at the 9-11 Memorial and Museum there towards Battery Park in the south end of Manhattan Island. My wife and I spent an entire day there, multiple hours, walking through all of the various areas that they have provided. As you walk through those massive waterfall memorials where the towers once stood, there is this sober silence that just kind of falls over the entirety of the crowd. The museum, it pulls you off of the, the high-paced sidewalks of Manhattan, and it takes you deep down into the belly of the remains of the collapsed buildings. 
And as you're traveling through the remains of the buildings, there are displays of the original architecture of the Twin Towers and aircraft that rammed into it and fire trucks that were burned in the process. And then there are these memorializations of those who lost their lives, thousands of people that lost their lives in that catastrophe in a single moment. And as you're traveling through the memorial, you just, this repetitive question, how could something so massive, so powerful, how, how could such a symbol of human ingenuity and advancement, how could, how could civilization, this is a symbol of civilization, how could it collapse so quickly? The memorials are an eerie and deeply moving place that kind of bring you out of the pseudo-reality that Manhattan is right face-to-face with the fragility of humanity. In 1998, University of Utah professor Joseph Tainter, he published a seminal work entitled The Collapse of Complex Societies, in which he argued that civilizations are fragile. Civilizations are impermanent things. Nearly every single civilization that has ever existed has ceased to exist. (laughs) And if you look through the history and the anthropological and archaeological record, it's true. From the Mayans to Mesopotamia to the pharaohs of Egypt to the great Grecian conquerors to the Caesars of Rome to the Byzantines to the European monarchies, human history is littered with the artifacts and the architecture of empires that have risen, ruled, faltered, fallen, and are no more. And the fall of the Twin Towers are a visceral embodied reality, a visceral reaction of the possibility of the collapse of the West. Now, some are saying that the troubles and the tumult of our modern day are hallmarks of not only the fall of the United States of America, possibly, but the fall of democracy itself and the way of being that democracy and Western thinking has multiplied globally, to which I respond, maybe, maybe not yet. What is for certain is that at some point, even the mighty empire, the God-blessed United States of America, this Western way of thinking, whether it be here or across the land in Europe, it will eventually be buried in the sands of time. This empire, too, will falter. It will fail. Civilizations are fragile, impermanent things, except for one, the kingdom of Jesus. This morning is an introduction to this obscure little community tucked away in the center of the Roman Empire that eventually turned the world powers of its day upside down on their head and became the dominant shaping force in all of the globe for the last two millennia. 2,000 years after its writing, we are sitting here in Midtown San Diego, 2022, launching a three-month study of a letter written by a Hebrew scholar and a rabbi named Paul to a community of Christian converts in the ancient Greco-Roman, excuse me, Greco-Roman city of Philippi around 62 AD. The letter of Philippians. And so despite what secular society may be saying about the demise of the church and deconstruction and the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S, despite all of those statistical facts, our very existence this morning sitting in this room as Christians and the staying power of letters like Philippians and others like them that comprise the library of what we call the Bible, Christian scripture, the existence of us and these letters and our studying them this morning are proof positive that nothing 
nothing will overcome Jesus and his people ever. The church, friends, I would like us to think of ourselves this way, exists as a parallel society of sorts. We exist alongside the empires of humans as those empires come and go. The church is in a parallel course. The church lives inside of human societies, but it operates outside of those societies' ideals and values. We are a counterculture alongside the prevailing culture. We are near it, but we don't meet our needs from it. We are in it, but we are not of it. And so the church is a civilization of a different sort because we don't bow to Caesars or the standards of earthly society. We are formed and ordered, guided and governed by Jesus Christ himself through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so rather than this parallel society being obliterated and consumed by the rise and fall of these human empires, rather than the civilization of heaven and the Holy Spirit being buried in the sands of time, our scriptures teach us that the end of history culminates with every knee bowing and declaring, Jesus is Lord. This is where the whole trajectory of creation is going. Heaven and earth becoming one again. All humanity existing together in harmony under Jesus' reign. And this, friends, is the certain and unending civilization that God is forming through you and I today, beginning in these church plants in Asia Minor 2,000 years ago, carrying through to us and on through to the future until the king returns. We are, you are, as a regenerate Christian, a citizen of the kingdom of God. We are a colony of heaven. This is the language that Paul uses. A colony of heaven. We are an outpost in these frontier lands between what has already begun and what is not yet fully complete in the future. And so what the Holy Spirit began in the city of Philippi 2,000 years ago, he is still bringing to completion today through you and I which we're going to summarize through the book of Philippians as planting joy, producing joy, multiplying joy, carrying joy. All throughout the lands, this is what God is doing. We are a society of smiling people. We are a civilization with a skip in our step, regardless of what is happening to us, because we have joy planted down in our hearts. <laughs> for all you church people, you, <laughs> sorry. So here's our roadmap for this morning. Our roadmap this morning, it's going to be really fun. We're going to do a very brief survey of how the Holy Spirit led the Apostle Paul in planting the church in the city of Philippi, Acts chapter 16. Micah read three key characters in the initial church plant in the city of Philippi from Acts chapter 16. We're going to look at those key characters and how the upstart all got going, and then we're going to conclude this morning by doing something I am almost certain none of you have ever done on a Sunday morning. Don't worry. It's going to be fun. It's not going to be weird. It's going to be super cool. You're going to walk away from it going, wow, that was awesome. We should do that more often. Cool? Everybody ready? Okay, let's do this. All right, so we're poking around Acts chapter 16. You really do need to read the entirety of Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16 is Dr. Luke's historical account of what happened in the city of Philippi when this crazy rabbi named Paul comes rolling in with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Philippi, let's talk about it for just a moment because it sets the scene for us here in modern-day San Diego. Philippi was a fairly important city of the district of Macedonia. I say fairly important in that Philippi was a lot like San Diego. It wasn't New York. It wasn't L.A. It was like a cool city, but not, you know, the coolest city, right? 
It existed in a province called Macedonia, think the state of California, in the midst of the Roman Empire, think the United States of America. And so it was, Philippi was very much like modern-day San Diego. It was an urban hub that included all the mix of culture and race, politics and perspectives, artists and entrepreneurs, soldiers and tourists that we are all rubbing shoulders with every single day. We are not so very different from our first century brothers and sisters. Now, to garner the loyalty of the citizens of Philippi, the Roman Caesar Octavian, at a certain point in history, rebuilt and refounded the city. And then to keep the citizens loyal, he granted them all Roman citizenship, which was a big deal. And then he populated it with Roman military veterans and personnel. Philippi was a military town. Vets walking around all over the place, just like right here in the city of San Diego. By the time that Paul had arrived, Philippi had become the political hub of the region. Now, let's talk about how Paul ended up in Philippi, because it was anything but a direct route for Paul to land in Philippi. It was never really actually part of the man's plan to plant a church in Philippi. And there are such important lessons for you and I this morning to learn in how God is guiding our life as a church plant, how God is guiding your lives personally for his purposes to unfold in planting joy in your homes, families, workplaces, classrooms, and in this city. I've had a lot of coffee this morning, and I'm excited about this book. <laughs> Paul was traveling with a few companions. He was traveling with a few companions. He had a team around him on the second round of missionary travels throughout Asia Minor. So he'd gone out, planted churches. They came back. They had this big council in Acts chapter 15, I think it is, where they had to make some big decisions. And then he goes back out with a team of friends around him to go out and carry the news and plant more churches and do what the Holy Spirit's telling them to do. Now, Luke tells us something really interesting in Acts chapter 16. Paul and company intended to travel north into a region called Phrygia and Galatia, okay? Modern-day Turkey. They wanted to go due north from where they were. But Luke tells us this strange little thing. The Holy Spirit forbade them from going into Phrygia and Galatia. Now, just track with this. It's a good thing. They've been commissioned to go on this missionary journey. And for some reason, the Holy Spirit, as they're traveling north, the Holy Spirit's like, nope, nope. Nope, you can't go there. Then it gets even more intense. So Paul and company, they turn due west. Okay, the Holy Spirit's saying we can't go into Phrygia and Galatia. So they turn due west, and the Holy Spirit puts up more roadblocks. As they're traveling west into a region called Maesia, Paul literally, or Luke says this, Acts 16, 7. When they came to the border of Maesia, so they'd gone north, Holy Spirit says no. Now they've gone west, Holy Spirit comes, and they try to enter Maesia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. And friends, listen. It was through these disorienting, confusing, closed doors that God was guiding them to where he wanted them. My wife and I, based on these verses, experienced this. 20 years ago, we had sold our home. Our babies were little. And we had told our families we were moving to Brajov, Romania. I'm not exaggerating. Brajov, Romania, to oversee an orphanage and plant churches in the Transylvanian mountains. I'm not joking. And in the final meeting with the uppy-ups that we were going to be serving under to move to Brajov, I sat there and the Holy Spirit was like, nope. And I looked over at my wife and she was like in full panic mode, like the Holy Spirit's telling us no. She's like, we got to get out of here. It was strange. And we got in the car after we'd committed and told our families we were moving to Brajov, Romania. 
And I looked at her, I was like, we're not supposed to go. And she's like, no, we're not supposed to go. And I remember calling the uppy-ups and them being like, did we do something wrong? Everything was going so great. I was like, the Holy Spirit just told us we can't go. And I never wanted to be in the United States. It was very disorienting, very disorienting. Here's what I want you to hear from this lesson. This morning, if you feel discouraged or disoriented, There was something on the horizon. It looked so good. It was a dream. It was a vision. It was an expectation. God has called me to do this, and you go traipsing out on your missionary journey. Nope, door closed. Nope, didn't work out. Nope, didn't come together. Nope, fell apart. If it feels as if the Holy Spirit himself is stopping you from entering into something that you were so certain was his will, just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Don't try to kick doors down. Don't try to climb over walls. Don't force your way in. You have to learn in these sacred seasons of his no, his saying no, his saying stop, to trust him as much as when he says yes, because as we put one foot in front of the other, kind of like, a, like in a pinball machine is sometimes the way it feels when we're trying to obey God. You get launched out there and you're just like ding, 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 ding. Vision is coming. Listen, I'm kind of holding myself like in a little fetal position hug this morning. I'm preaching to myself right now. Vision is coming if you just keep putting one foot in front of the other. No matter how confused and overwhelmed and disoriented you are, one foot in front of the other by faith. Your father wants to speak to you. Paul, for Paul, it came to him, Acts chapter 16, in the form of a man from Macedonia. Paul has this vision as they're kind of out pinballing around Asia Minor, trying to figure out what God wants them to do. And one night, Paul has this vision of a man from Macedonia, the province where Philippi was located. And the man from Philippi is saying, come help us, Paul. So they understood the vision to be a call from God. And so they immediately set sail. They're pinballing through Asia Minor. They get a vision, and now it's time to go. They make a couple pit stops at a couple different cities. You can read that for yourself in Acts chapter 16, before they finally settle into the city of Philippi, looking for this man who had cried out for help. When they arrive in Philippi, the following interactions and their efforts led to the first converts in Europe. Philippi is the first church plant of Europe. How crazy is that? And these people, as we're about to meet them, they were the least likely candidates to go out and become the fountainheads of cultural, economic, political upheaval for the next 2,000 years, which is just another encouraging note for you and I. As we sit here in our tiny little community in the middle of Midtown San Diego, in the middle of this huge empire called America, we would be the least likely people to turn this city this society, upside down. We who are on the margins, inconsequential and uncertain about our purposes, as we study the Philippian church, we will see God does so much more in us and through us than we could ever imagine. So again, I had Micah read those introductory sections. Of the three key converts in Acts chapter 16, the three key characters in Acts chapter 16, because what I really wanted you to get a feel for was how the Holy Spirit, through the first church in Europe, right up to our church here in San Diego, you know what he does? He ransacks common cultural, racial, and social barriers to bring us together. The kingdom of God plants joy by ransacking cultural racial, social, and economic barriers and making us one. 
So the first person that Paul meets is not a man. It's a woman, a woman named Lydia. And he meets a group of women praying at a riverbank as he comes into the city. And this was no small twist from the vision that Paul had received. Remember, it was a man. Come help me. So he goes to Philippi. He's looking for a dude. Who does he run into? A woman. Not only a woman, but a group of women. What we have to always remember is that as God is guiding us in this pinball experience of on mission for him, as God is guiding us, what we see initially is all, I'm going to say never in my life, it has never become what I saw in my head, ever. As God guides us, what we see initially is almost never what we will see as it begins to come to fruition in our personal lives. So Lydia, let's meet Lydia very briefly. We're told that she was a seller of purple fabrics. She dealt in high Roman fashion. Reading between the lines, Lydia was most likely a member of a community of power broker women in the region. And these power broken women, they were actually somewhat of an anomaly in the male-dominated Roman culture. Macedonia was actually known for a whole community of high-level business women, like San Diego. Lydia would have been extremely well-to-do, but her wealth was still not quenching her hunger for God. We're told by Luke that she was a worshiper of God, which is a pretty technical term in the Greek language, but we might think of her as somebody who was a spiritual person, but not overly religious. That's how we moderns describe it. She knew that there was something out there, but she wasn't fully committed to one path until this rabbi shows up, Paul, starts preaching Jesus, and God opens her heart. So immediately, this rich, wealthy, high-power woman of the Roman Empire becomes a Christian, and she immediately goes to her family, and Luke tells us that her whole family ends up being baptized, and it's very likely that the Church of Philippi was founded and carried on its residence in Lydia's personal home. In fact, there are a number of scholars who acknowledge the likelihood of Lydia being one of the primary leaders in the early community. Why? Because from the beginning, our Father has been planting his joy and his purposes in and through all peoples of God equally, men and women. So from the heights of high fashion in Acts chapter 16 and wealthy households, Paul's next convert was an impoverished, enslaved teenage girl. The girl that we meet in Acts chapter 16, she's following Paul and his entourage around saying, these men are declaring the way of God. 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 Anybody getting annoyed yet? These That's what's happening. That's what's happening. She was demon possessed. She was the epitome of powerlessness because her demonic possession had given her fortune telling gifts. And greedy men had then enslaved her to make money off of her. In every way, this little girl was the epitome of enslavement, imprisonment, and no power. High power Lydia, roller shaker, making money in the Roman Empire, enslaved, impoverished, demon-possessed little girl. Paul gets tired of the annoying proclamations about what they're doing, turns around, delivers her from the demon, and she becomes the second convert, the second church plant member of the team to plant the first church in Europe. And when Paul does that, he literally turned the economic well-being of Philippi upside down, the downturn. He created a downturn for their economy in the psychic and fortune-telling sector, so much so that they get upset with him, and they toss him into a Roman prison. And this was the means by which the third convert would be made. You don't get to go to Galatia or Phrygia. A man, come help me. 
a woman and a group of women are who they meet, the first converts. And then the second convert, a little slave girl who's trying to tell everybody about Jesus, but just in the wrong way, delivered from her demonic issues. And then they find themselves in jail. And at some point here, here's where Dan is. Dan is sitting in jail going, come on. I am raw. I am broken. My expectations, what I thought would happen, what I thought I would see, what I thought you were telling me to do. I'm in prison, but not Paul and his people. Paul's in there singing songs to Jesus, praising God, trusting him in the disorientation, trusting him in the confusion. And so as they are in their cell, as they are singing to Jesus, Luke tells us an earthquake shakes the foundations, a literal earthquake shakes the foundations, breaks the prisoner's free from their imprisonment. And as all the prisoners are escaping, we meet the third convert to the church in Philippi, the Philippian jailer. The Philippian jailer sees all of the prisoners escaping. His whole meaning and purpose has been lost in life. And so he becomes suicidal. And Paul stops him from committing suicide, saying to him, wait, we're not going anywhere. We're going to stay right here. So profound is Paul's songs and psalms to God and his staying to save the Philippian jailer that the man responds to Paul, what must I do to be saved? So there you have it. Philippi, an important-ish city in the Roman Empire, a military, political, cultural hub nestled into this vast swath of society, these missional doors that you would think should have been open to Phrygia and Galatia, but instead were closed. The vision of a man that leads to women, a demon-possessed slave girl, and a suicidal blue-collar military vet. That's how God renewed and is renewing creation. If you are disoriented and raw, Doors have closed and you don't know why. If you feel like the pressures of a society that still puts women in their place for the most part are beginning to frustrate you to the point of wanting to give up. If you feel imprisoned and enslaved by the attacks, by the emotional whatever it may be, if you feel like you're owned by somebody else, if you're the one who's the blue-collar guy saying, what am I doing with my life? The story of Philippi tells us that it is you and I that change the world. It is you and I that turn the world upside down. And so this is what we're going to do for our remaining time. Here comes the weird Sunday morning thing you've never done. Everybody take a, take a deep breath. Okay, this is going to be cool. Here's what we're going to do. We're all going to start clucking like chickens. And no. I don't know why that came to my mind. Here's what we're going to do. Our friend Paul, it's 10 years later, and we are the Church of Philippi. We're going to play pretend this morning. We are the Church of Philippi. We're just like them. We're just like them. It's about 10 years after Paul had rolled through town. We've heard through the grapevine that Paul is now in a Roman prison. Some of us know Paul personally. We were the first ones there. We were on the ground at the beginning of the plant. We know Lydia personally. We've been in her home many, many times. Others of us have been invited in over the years. And we've heard about this Paul our friend, our pastor, the guy that planted this church. And we've missed him. We've been concerned about him. And so we find ourselves here gathered in Lydia's house on a Sunday morning. There's food. There's friendship. There's laughter. You can see the 
the, the, the Philippian jailer who was going to kill himself, he's having some conversation with some high fashionista person from Rome, and they're talking about business together. You see the little, the girl that was enslaved, and she's talking to Lydia there on the, in the corner of the room about a business idea that she has that she wants to be mentored by Lydia in as she starts her own business. And Lydia kind of excuses herself from that conversation. She stands up and she says, friends, 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 hey, it's another Sunday morning, and guess what? We've received a letter from our friend Paul. And there's a hushed silence that falls over the room. Wait, is that the Paul that Lydia talks about that led her to Jesus 10 years ago? Because I'm following Jesus because of that guy now. Hey, Paul's written us a letter. We're we're all going to listen to what Paul has to say. Somebody opens up the letter. Somebody that was eloquent and well-read would read the letter to the community. And we now are going to read the book of Philippians. What I want to invite you to do is just listen as this letter is read to you. We are the Philippian community in modern-day San Diego, and our friend Paul, through the, through the thousands of years of history, is writing to you and I, and he addresses all sorts of issues. In Greek literature, this is what we call an oratory letter of friendship. <laughs> it's, a lori- it's, a, it's a letter with exhortations and, and corrections and comforts for the people of God. It's also a letter of friendship. It's Paul writing to his friends saying, hey, here's how I'm doing. Here's how I hear you guys are doing. Here's what we should all be doing until the king returns. And then we're going to take communion. Have any of you ever read through an entire book on a Sunday morning? This is going to be so hard because my face is going to turn red because I'm going to want to preach every line as I'm reading it. (laughs) Should take us about 20 minutes. Cool? As always, take a breath. Get present to this Holy Spirit. As the scriptures are opened, God the Spirit speaks to us. This is his primary means of communicating with you and I. And now our friend who is in prison, our friend who has no food, our friend who is likely starving to death, our friend who we know who in a matter of years of writing this will have his head cut off by the Roman Empire because of his love for Jesus. Our friend is writing to us to encourage us. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel as the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It's true 
that some preach Jesus out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will have in no way be ashamed." but will have sufficient course so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Jesus, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain. And I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Jesus will abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Jesus, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others." In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus, who, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death and even death on a cross." Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and so to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation." 
Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor in vain. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone else looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it's a safeguard for all of you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it's we who are the circumcision. We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Jesus. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Jesus and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Jesus. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and to participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, well, that too, God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, 
Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me, Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was God, it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts, What a desire is that more be credited to your accounts. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father, Be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all of God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, 
especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. And so the gathering would go on. We think that in Philippi and cities like Corinth and Ephesus and Galatia, the, there were networks of growing house churches. Just a, a, little, a few less people than are gathered here this morning, crammed into homes, reading these letters. And then they would have what they called a love feast. <laughs> um, if we can ever have our own property here in this city, we would, we would have food on Sundays together. We would read these letters We'd hang out with Lydia and the slave girl and the Philippian jailer, and we'd all share stories after the gatherings of what God is doing in us for the sake of our city. This morning, we're going to come to communion, and for the next three months, every Sunday, we're going to take a segment of this letter, we're going to break it down, we're going to apply it, we're going to pray through it, we're going to carry it through into our city. What I am riveted by and why I can't wait to meet Paul. I just, he has carried me through so much. Anytime I, I've really like, you know, stubbed my toe bad and I think the cosmos is ending because it hurt, I'm confronted with Paul sitting in prison telling this community hundreds of miles away as he's starving, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. As we come to communion this morning, the reason Paul had such a strength was he really did live in the intersection between heaven and earth. Paul literally knew that the standards of the society, the empire that he lived in, he knew the empire that he was alongside was fragile and coming to its end. And you and I, we sit alongside this very fragile empire that in many ways is coming to its end. And so as a parallel society this morning, we are the interface between heaven and earth. If we believe that, it changes the way that we think about our circumstances, our hurt, our wounds. There's an entire segment that I wish I could do three months on alone, just a couple verses. I want to participate in his sufferings, becoming like him, that in some way I might attain the resurrection from the dead. We are cruciformed people. We worship within the architecture of the cross. And your pain is not purposeless this morning. Your disorientation does not mean that you're confused and lost God's call in your life. He is guiding you and vision is coming and he wants to turn this city upside down through some suicidal blue-collar vets, some formerly demon-possessed, enslaved, impoverished teenagers, and some power broker women. It's pretty cool. As we come to communion, may we remember what it cost our king to give us life and may we live for him May we truly be, uh, in the most beautiful sense of the word, a colony of heaven here in the city. And so, Father, we bow before you now in song and in praise. The letter has been read, and now, Spirit, come and apply and transform. May we receive and respond to your admonitions to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll have communion folks up here on the side, Matt and Katie.